Welcome to the Safe and Sound Protocol podcast, a polyvagal theory informed therapy. I'm your host, Joanne McIntyre. Here we talk everything polyvagal and SSP related. Dr. Porges has provided us with a revolutionary framework for understanding the connection between our autonomic nervous system and behavior. The SSP acoustic intervention is an exciting new therapy helping people all around the world. Welcome to the fourth episode of the Safe and Sound Protocol podcast. Today, I'm so honoured to have the one and only Dr. Stephen Forges as my guest. Because the information was so rich, we've broken it up into two parts. In part one, Dr. Forges discusses the theoretical basis behind developing the Safe and Sound Protocol, and then in part two, digs deep into therapeutic applications. So without further ado, I will formally introduce Dr. Stephen Forges. He is a distinguished university scientist at Indiana University, where he is the founding director of the Traumatic Stress Research Consortium. He is professor of psychiatry at the University of North Carolina and professor emeritus at both the University of Illinois, Chicago and the University of Maryland. He served as president of the Society for Psychophysiological Research and the Federation for Associations in Behavioral and Brain Sciences and a former recipient of the National Institute of Mental Health Research Scientist Development Award. He has published more than 300 peer-reviewed scientific papers across several disciplines that have been cited in more than 30,000 peer-reviewed papers. He holds several patents involved in monitoring and regulating autonomic states. He is the originator of the polyvagal theory, a theory that emphasizes the importance of physiological states as the expression of behavioral, mental and health problems related to traumatic experiences. He is the author of the polyvagal theory, neurophysiological foundations of emotions, attachment, communication and self-regulation published by Norton. The Pocket Guide to the Polyvagal Theory, The Transformative Power of Feeling Safe, published by Norton, and the co-editor of Clinical Applications of the Polyvagal Theory, The Emergence of Polyvagal Informed Therapy, published by Norton, 2018. Dr. Porges is the creator of the Safe and Sound Protocol, Acoustic Intervention, which currently is used by more than 1,500 therapists to provide spontaneous social engagement, to reduce hearing sensitivity, and to improve language processing and communication and state regulation and social engagement. Welcome, Dr. Porges. I really appreciate you coming and spending your time with us today. And I'm really hoping this is an opportunity for us to really delve a little deeper into the Safe and Sound Protocol and understand more about how it came to be. Well, thank you for inviting me. And for me, this is a wonderful opportunity uh, for me to tell my journey in terms of developing the SSP. And more than that, uh, for me to describe what feelings of gratitude I start experiencing when I hear from people about how effective it is in changing the lives of others. And that to me is really part of you know one's life's goal is to do something, but do something that is helpful to others. Yeah. Yeah. So let's let's move on. Let's yeah. get some good questions. Mm. 
Well, I guess um, I know personally what I'm really curious about is as you're developing the polyvagal theory, at what point made you kind of divert to explore the ear at the extent that you did and then think about an acoustic intervention? Uh, this, is, this is an interesting intellectual journey. Mm. It actually started off when I was in graduate school. So let me take you back. Yeah, if you, you know, let's say, yeah. invite me to give you my life history. Yeah. Uh, actually, I can bring it back to when I was 12. And I was a clarinet player, mm -hmm. uh, musician. I was a, actually quite a good clarinetist. I ended up being uh, second seed in the All-State Band in the state of New Jersey. And my clarinet teacher was... Uh, the former solo clarinetist for Tuscanini in the NBC Symphony. So I would go weekly to New York City for a clarinet lesson. But the issue, the issue isn't really the quality of, of my abilities to play the clarinet. It was really what happens when you play the clarinet. And when you play the clarinet, you basically take a breath and you exhale very slowly. Mm -hmm. And so when you exhale slowly, you're playing your music. Singers do something similar, and if you are a public speaker and you speak in longer phrases with a modulated uh, voice, uh, you also are exhaling slower. And I didn't understand all this, except I understood the bodily feelings. So as a uh, adolescent growing through you know, puberty, as males do and women do as well, uh, behavioral state rate. Right now. Hmm. Oh, well, <laughs> you, just, you only have... Uh, 15 more years to be concerned about, that's mm. all. But what you start realizing is that the underlying issue in life for humans as a mammalian species is our ability to regulate our bodily state. It's really about regulation of our, our feelings and our physiology. And what I started to learn serendipitously was playing the clarinet by exhaling slowly was calming me down. Mm -hmm. So I was calm. And there were other, in a sense, emergent properties of that. I was able to uh, think, dream, create ideas, in a sense, go to different places. Mm -hmm. So it's where you know, you're not in the sense of, of you have to move or do something. You're, in a sense, you're more present. And that becomes a common word in the land, in the world of therapists, being present mm -hmm. and, in a sense, being embodied. So slow exhalation enabled this uh, rapidly maturing adolescent male to be in his body and to uh, be present in the world while at times also going on journeys of thoughts and discovery and creativity. So that was me as this young teenager. And as I grew up, I went to graduate school. I was always interested in what, does, what do physiological measures of an individual tell you about the individual? Um, what do they tell you about what they're thinking or their intentions? It wasn't really the issue of lie detection. It was really trying to know more about how to navigate in this complex world. So when we're navigating the world, we have to be reading cues about others. Mm. And no one tells us how to read cues. Mm. They tell us we're supposed to do certain behaviors. But they don't tell us what are the cues. How important is intonation of voice? How important is facial expression? How important is orienting your head? the person that you're speaking to. Mm -hmm. So these are things that our body reacts to. Mm -hmm. So I was interested in this. I went off to graduate school and I was trying to find what discipline studied uh, physiological activity while people were going through different psychological 
experiences. And there was a new discipline that was emerging at that time called psychophysiology. Mm -hmm. So it was a discipline that really was interesting what physiological features change when psychological states change. And I started in this area and I was one of the first people to be a developmental psychophysiologist, meaning studying uh, children and babies to kind of understand what's going on in their world through the use of physiological measures. So over time, so that brought, brings you up now to the late 1960s and I got my PhD in 1970. And I'm off now running, doing research, measuring physiological activity in newborn nurseries and I'm getting a little side interested in clinical issues, measuring that side issues in uh, what happens during surgery and medical procedures. Mm -hmm. And I'm watching autonomic, meaning heart rate measures changing. And I started defining and developing, actually in the late 60s, while still a grad student, metrics, ways of measuring heart rate variability. And at that point, no one had really quantified it. So my research is really the first published studies quantifying heart rate variability as both an individual difference, a base level measure, and also trying to define how heart rate variability changed when people were attending or psychologically engaged. And that's kind of goes back to my early questions when I was even mm -hmm. in high school. But the really, as a scientist, I wasn't satisfied with the use of physiological measurements as indices or correlates of other processes. I wanted to know why. Mm -hmm. I wanted to know what were the pathways. What were the pathways, neural pathways that regulate the heart? And that led me to understanding the vagus and the vagal control of the heart. And what you find is very interesting is that in the whole area of both psychophysiology and stress physiology, people never mentioned the parasympathetic nervous system or the vagus mm -hmm. uh, before, I would say probably before 1990. Mm -hmm. They talked about sympathetic reactions. They talked about hormonal reactions, cortisol, uh, norepinephrine, but they didn't talk about vagal regulation of the heart. And that really was my work brought that in. But I was hit with a problem in the early 1990s. And that was I was uh, developing methods that I called methods of measuring vagal regulation of the heart from the heart rate variability. And I was using those measures as the measures of resilience and uh, basically uh, measures of health growth and restoration, positive indices of health. And I published a paper uh, in 1992 on babies uh, in a journal called Pediatrics in which I talked about these measures of heart rate activity as being predictors of outcome. And I looked at high-risk babies and full-term ones mm -hmm. and showed that their uh, respiratory size arrhythmia, the heart rate variability and the respiratory frequency was different in these two groups. And I was proposing that a good clinical indicator of this uh, resilience measure would be a measure of vagal tone to the heart quantified by respiratory science arrhythmia. Mm -hmm. Now, that then stimulated a letter, and I always like to make this statement. It was before email, so I got a letter, mm -hmm. and, the letter and the letter was from a neonatologist who said that when he was, first of all, he said it was an interesting paper. However, when he was in medical school, he learned that the vagus could kill you. Mm -hmm. And he said, perhaps too much of a good thing was bad. 
Now, first of all, I had to understand what he was saying. Mm -hmm. He was saying that as a neonatologist, one of their major concerns is a phenomenon called bradycardia, when the heart rate drops too, too low mm -hmm. and can't support oxygenation of the blood sufficiently to, to keep the, uh, the individual alive. Mm -hmm. So bradycardia is a marker indices that there's not enough oxygen going to the brain and the baby is then going to have severe complications and potentially lethal. And those, that bradycardia, he said, was vagal. Yet the vagal tone that I was talking about was protective. Mm -hmm. Whenever you had the, the rhythms in the heart rate, you never had the bradycardia. This I called the vagal paradox. So with the vagal paradox, I then had a problem. And the problem was, how could the vagus both be protective and kill you? Mm -hmm. And that led me to a, uh, a, a true academic search of information in which I went through the, the literature of everything, all things vagal. And I basically uh, landed in an area of the sub-basement of the National Institutes of Health Library mm -hmm. and started to look at an area that I had never even taken a course in, which was comparative neuroanatomy. Mm -hmm. And comparative neuroanatomy looks at the nervous systems of different species to develop a hypothesis or a plausible hypothesis of evolution mm -hmm. because we can't really measure things uh, that have become extinct, but we can see the more modern uh, relatives of those extinct uh, organisms. And what I started to find out was that there was a major transition when, uh, when re between reptiles and the early primitive mammals. And those early primitive mammals had two branches of the vagus. And one branch uh, was primarily regulating the gut, and the other branch was regulating the heart. But the branch that was regulating the heart was, going, was coming from an area of the brainstem that regulated the muscles of the face and head, including the middle ear muscles. Mm -hmm. So what you start to see is that when mammals evolve, they regulate their physiological state through social interactions that required vocalizations, facial expressivity, and listening. And that's how they could determine whether one of their species, the conspecifics, was safe to come close to. Mm -hmm. So the issue was what were the nerves producing vocalization well, they were vagal nerves also, but they weren't going to the heart, but they were parallel to those going to the heart. So just as heart rate variability in the respiratory band was predictive of a, or coincident with a physiological state of calmness, prosodic voices, which meant more variability intonation, was what our nervous systems were looking for in our interactions so that we could feel safe and calm down. Mm -hmm. And just think for a moment that if a person talks in a monotone, high voice, barrel frequency, how do we feel? Wow. We get anxious along with them. And if they talk with a booming, low, monotone voice, how do we feel? We feel that there's a predator in the room. Mm -hmm. So these are evolutionarily uh, defined frequency bands that mammals uh, inherited, or I'd say humans inherited from more primitive mammals. So, so by around, uh, in 1994, I created the polyvagal theory, and in it I was describing these two different branches of the vagus, 
But by 1998, I had incorporated what I call the social engagement system, which literally tied together the cranial nerves regulating the muscles of the face and head with the vagal regulation of the heart. And that leads us into really SSP and leads us into the power of social interactions as regulators of physiological state. Because what this system tells us is that as we study the evolution, the regulation of our heart and our viscera became tied to the regulation of facial muscles and the muscles of the head that include muscles of vocalization. And I think that's, and I remember doing some reading and just around this whole theme, but even Darwin, I remember coming yeah. across Darwin, he refers to that connection between the face and the heart via the neurogastric yeah. nerve. So yeah. I think it's yeah. so interesting that he discovered that, but yet no one did anything else with it until essentially your work. Yeah, well, I, I used to, in many of my papers, there is the quote from the expression, the Darwin's book of the expression, mm -hmm of emotions in man and animals, where he talks about the pneumogastric nerve, which was later called the vagus. Yeah. And yeah, so it was in a sense, it became, um, and he calls it, he says the connection between two most important organs of the body. Yeah. And the important part about understanding and conceptualizing the vagus and everything that evolves from this in terms of models of treatment is that the vagus is a conduit. It's just a wire, but it's a bi-directional wire. It has signals going to the heart from the brainstem, but also from the heart and the body to the brainstem. And most of the fibers are sensory, but most people don't think about the sensory components of it. Mm -hmm. So we are this bi-directional brain-body system, and that's why conditions or states of our body influence how we can access uh, memories or access uh, cortical, cognitive, uh, cortical areas that enable us to be efficient and make good decisions. And in your background, Joanne, where you're interested in neurofeedback mm -hmm. and EEG patterns, um, what has been lost in much of that research was a what I call a cortical-centric perspective, which didn't acknowledge the important role that afferents, especially those coming up through the vagus, the sensory pathways, what they do to uh, cortical activity and how they change the accessibility of decision-making and calmness. Mm -hmm. So basically, uh, it's important for us to really bring another person into this discussion. And this is a person by the name of Walter Hess. Mm -hmm. And Walter Hess, in 1949, received the Nobel Prize in Medicine and Physiology, or, or as they say, Medicine or Physiology. That's what mm -hmm. the Nobel Committee calls it. Right. But what his uh, Nobel Prize was for was basically about the central nervous system regulating the viscera, regulating the autonomic. Mm -hmm. So that was known by 1949. And in his Nobel Prize speech, he talks about functionally one nervous system, not a peripheral or autonomic versus a central. So what we've had in our academic learning is a decapitation wow. of the head from the body. We had created a dualism where the body became less important and the brain became everything. Mm -hmm. But what uh, uh, Walter Hess is saying is that their interactions, and this has been, there's a wonderful quote in the in his speech where he says, this has been known from the earliest of times. 
and it, it's very new agey. And I, mm -hmm. I, when I read that in my talks, I say, if I use that quotation, I would never get a paper published or grant funded. <laughs> Uh, but I think he really is right, and it's a conceptualization. So in the world that we've been in, is because people see the separation, they don't understand the, the importance of physical illness on mental process or physical injury, or let's say medical emergencies on psychological state, and that reaches now into the world of S SP providers, mm -hmm. because a lot of, a lot of the clients have had either medical trauma or psychological trauma, but no identifiable injury to their bodies that we would normally call trauma, but it had to do with all the contextual cues going on. Mm. Well, and I think hopefully this space is changing with that awareness between body and brain connection with, with the information like the ACES study where they sort yeah. of see the correlation of those early life stress and then how it plays out in mental health and in physical so, illness as well. I, I think that's extremely important, but let's, let's actually talk a moment about ACEs mm -hmm. and what ACEs does okay. and what ACEs doesn't do. Mm -hmm. So ACEs is adverse childhood experiences, but it's, it's really a spreadsheet of events. Mm -hmm. And our bodies are basically do not catalog experiences based on number of events we catalog them based upon our bodily feelings. Mm -hmm. So there's a distinction between a polyvagal perspective to trauma versus an ACEs one. ACEs is just saying, uh, give you accumulation of categories. Polyvagal theory says that the human documentary is not a narrative of events, mm -hmm. it's a narrative of feelings. Mm -hmm. And when we take that as, as being something real about being human, we then start opening uh, portals of how we treat reactions to trauma. Mm -hmm. So would you sort of say that more of that accumulated sort of biological stress that just kind of just snowballs over the years? Yeah, yeah. and the problem with, with an ACEs model is that psychological stress that snowballs or accumulates may not hit a threshold of being an adverse experience mm -hmm. for one person but it could be, in a sense, almost life-threatening to another. Mm -hmm. So we now live in a world where we say, ah, that didn't bother me. What are you all upset about? Right. As opposed to the world that says, oh, that bothered you. How can I be helpful? Right. How can I uh, support you, enable you to feel safe in the world that I feel safe in? Mm -hmm. And that's part of our human responsibility. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we're going in, so you're now wanting to, you've developed and realized the connection with the vagus with cranial yeah. nerves and ear and prosody, but then you delve so much deeper into yeah. that well, connection. Yeah. yeah. So now we're into the, uh, I actually went through after I uh, tried to figure out what is the timeline of these things. It's actually oh my on my webpage, there's a little uh, timeline where I identify what I think were the distinct things that, that occurred. So about 1998, I wrote a paper. It's called Love. I can't remember the rest of the title, but it's in a, a, a very, uh, it's a very good journal called Psychoneuroendocrinology. And it was a paper that I wrote because my wife, who's Sue Carter, mm -hmm. uh, was editing, a, a, was running a conference in Sweden Mm -hmm. uh, for the Wintergren Foundation, and it was on the biology of love. Mm 
And the whole uh, conference is a special issue of that journal. And given that my wife was running the conference, I felt I had to do an important article. And in that article is where I introduced the social engagement system, mm -hmm. and which is really uh, kind of talking about the preamble of, of bonding, that you have to send cues to another to be safe before you can be in physical proximity, before you can have physical contact, before you can feel comfortable in the arms of another. Mm -hmm. So we're all, basically it starts building on the model that we are negotiating psychological space through voice and through facial expressivity mm -hmm. that enables us to come closer. So that brings us to 1998. By 1999, or actually by 1997, I was already experimenting because uh, I can tell it's 1997 because some of the videos I still show mm -hmm. have the year pumped on it. Right, right. And, and I was trying to develop uh, intervention for autistic kids and uh, in which I wanted to port into their nervous system hyperprosodic vocalizations. Mm -hmm. So if prosody is part of this feature that our nervous system is looking for, what happens if we take away low frequencies, high frequencies, and we amplify the modulations of song? So we, it's kind of like visualize an equalizer where we turn off the highs and lows, but then mm -hmm. we jump around and move the frequencies dynamically in the middle. Mm -hmm. So we're actually creating more activity, uh, more intonation than is normal. And that these changes in intonation follow all the uh, rhythms of our biology, of breathing frequencies and vascular frequencies, so that our nervous system sees them as being biological. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's what the initial SSP was all about. Mm -hmm. And to my surprise, we ran it on four autistic kids. To my shock, uh, they uh, almost didn't appear to be autistic to me after we ran it. Mm -hmm. So I figured uh, it, it was a, not a good thing for me to have experienced because <laughs> I said, okay, now let's do something else. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but I needed now over the years to kind of understand what was going on. Mm -hmm. And so we tried to uh, develop measurements and actually had a, a patent published on a device that measured the middle ear muscle uh, mm -hmm. uh, tone. And because we were able over the next decade to actually start showing in subjects that the tension of the middle ear muscles could be regulated through SSP, could be triggered. So I was really trying to develop measures and methods to validate a concept that didn't exist within speech and hearing sciences. Mm -hmm. So what I was saying was that the middle ear muscles were the critical filter. There were a few papers on that, but most people didn't talk about the re rehabilitation of those mm -hmm. uh, neuroregulation of those muscles. They treated it as if this was a permanent one. So if you have a permanent deficit in the neuroregulation of the middle ear muscles, the first symptom is very simple. You're hypersensitive to sounds. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, and, and I, I said it's fortunately, not uh, in a, because I was gonna say, for, fortunately there's a medical disorder that has that feature, but I don't mean that the, it's fortunate those people have that feature. I know, I understand, is, yes, but it helps provide the discovery and the connection, yes. Yeah, that's right. Uh, but we have to be sensitive. So oh. 
the the medical dis, uh, disorder is called Bell's palsy. Mm -hmm. Bell's palsy is a partial, it's a hemiparalysis of the facial nerve. But the facial nerve also regulates the more primary, the more powerful middle ear muscle, the stapedius. And so when people have a paralysis, their face kind of droops, mm -hmm. but they also have auditory hypersensitivities. Mm -hmm. And it's and uh, it's really quite remarkable. And the, and the real telltale is to look at the obicularis oculi, which is the orbital muscle around the eye. And that loses its uh, muscle tone, and the face now looks flat, emotionally flat and cold. And the person now is hypersensitive. And now you start seeing the facial features of people who are very stressed, people who may have PTSD, or people or individuals on the autism spectrum. Mm -hmm. So you see a lot of these features. Even someone who gets a cold or gets an illness, mm -hmm. their face goes flat mm -hmm. and they often are auditorily hypersensitive and their voice uh, pick, reflects that change in state. Mm -hmm. So and we start more to... irritable as well. Yeah. It's well, an immediate emotional re response when you can't have clear acoustic information. Mm -hmm. Right. And then how do we respond to people who are irritable? Mm -hmm. We yell at them, we tell them, that, why are you being irritable? As if it's an intention to be irritable. Mm -hmm. And what their body's telling you is they're getting overwhelmed by the sensory stimulation in their world. Mm -hmm. And so it's somewhere along the line, probably in the early 1920s or 30s, when we became such a behavioristic oriented culture mm -hmm. with uh, Watson and behaviorism we kept on really saying whoever we are it's because of our intention and if we're not nice we don't intend to be nice so we started giving people all kinds of responsibilities for behaviors that were much more emergent or spontaneous mm -hmm. and when we learn about that we start teaching people how to manage their body in these complex situations and so in the late 1990s, I was using these acoustic stimulation to trigger physiological and behavioral states of safety. And what happened was a lot of kids started to basically no longer have autistic symptoms. Mm -hmm. And the reaction by the clinicians were that the clinicians had done this, mm -hmm. uh, that it wasn't SSP. Mm -hmm. And it, it was a whole, a whole interesting issue of what was going on. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I decided that I wouldn't, I would not, although I continued probably already into 2010, continued with the autism research, I would say that I'm not dealing with autism, I'm dealing with auditory hypersensitivities. Mm -hmm. And then I got into another kind of hole because the area of auditory processing uh, assumed uh, permanent auditory processing deficits or central auditory processing right. deficits mm -hmm. and I actually was doing studies where I was showing that many of the autistic kids who came into this study off scale on the, on the low end by the time they had five days they were in the normal range right. so how could this be a permanent central dysfunction should mm -hmm. it could it be a, uh, a central regulation of the peripheral middle ear muscles right. or state change that would enable this to occur. Mm -hmm. uh, the underlying metaphor, so over time you, I needed to develop a language of what I was actually doing. Mm -hmm. So the language starts to take on a different narrative. 
And the narrative is, what does a mother do to calm her baby? Mm -hmm. Yeah, prosodic. The mother uses a prosodic voice. And mm -hmm. what happens to the baby's uh, anger, frustration, tears, discomfort, it disappears mm -hmm. if the mother is gentle and has a good intonation. <clears throat> Fathers aren't as good. Mm -hmm. So uh, what I, I like to talk about is the uh, experiments or these observations I have in airports <laughs> where the father has to take the boy toddler to the bathroom right. and, uh, and the toddler comes back screaming <laughs> and, and the father is really irate. Right, and, right. You know, yeah. And because he's out of control, he can't control the, the child. Right. Child goes to the mother and the mother just kind of like smiles and says a word, tears disappear. Right. And so you start seeing the cues being different and the different roles. So I often say fathers are not particularly good with their kids or their spouses, but they're great with their dogs. Mm -hmm. And that is they, they, when they talk to their dogs, they use a false voice, a mm -hmm. prosodic voice. But when they talk to the spouses, they never give up to the male voice. Not when they talk to the kids, they don't give it up either. Mm -hmm. But when they talk to pets, they do. So the other metaphor I've always played with is this notion that our nervous system is waiting for Johnny Mathis. And Johnny Mathis was a, a, a singer when I was growing up, but it was a singer that uh, the adolescent males and females used to listen to when they wanted to become closer together, turn the lights oh, off and hug each other. <laughs> and basically what it did was it enabled both individuals to feel mm -hmm. safe in the arms of each other. It took away the need to talk but they mm -hmm. made them feel safe with each other. Mm -hmm. It's a very interesting metaphor. So what did Johnny Mathis' voice have to do or how did it overlap with the voice of uh, a mother's lullaby or a mother's mm -hmm. voice? They overlap in the same frequency mm -hmm. modulations. So as you're thinking around the protocol in trying to make a, a narrative around it, you were thinking I wanted to shift and make that connection with middle ear muscles and and, and the precise, I, I, I would simplify and, and say, I think the mm -hmm. critical thing is we evolved to feel safe with mm -hmm. others. Mm -hmm. We evolved to regulate our biological, physi physiological state through our interactions with others. And those interactions often had a lot of vocal input. Right. And that seems to be a portal that is very powerful it's so powerful that we often tend to be unaware that it's happening. Yeah. So SSP became what I would call a stealth intervention. And mm -hmm. so no one felt they were doing anything. It was passive. Mm -hmm. Their bodies could process it. It wasn't a challenge in which they fought back. Now, the issue is what we start learning from the use of SSP is as people's bodies feel safe, if they have a severe trauma history, feeling safe becomes a cue to react. Yeah. So mm -hmm. SSP makes the traumatized individual biologically and physiologically feel vulnerable. Yes. So we have this, this continuum of vulnerability to accessibility, and we want to be accessible human beings. But if we have a trauma history, the memories of accessibility are overlaid with mm -hmm. memories of being injured. And that's where therapy uh, works, where people use SSP with other therapeutic modalities, and they can use SSP 
to enable their clients to move into different physiological states of which they can then talk about and resolve. Yes, yes. And I think practitioners really educating themselves about polyvagal theory and using that framework and even pulling some of the work from Deb Dana's yeah. application in the therapeutic yeah. setting even supports um, outcomes with the SSP as well. And I think it's yeah. important. Yeah. So if we mm -hmm. take, so Deb's work is really brilliant because it allows mm -hmm. clients or people to experience their physiological state and develop a narrative to understand it with, with the labels of the polyvagal theory, where they are moving into states of calmness and safety, states of more reactivity and mobilization versus states of collapse. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and when we start understanding how we move through those, they become resources yeah. for us to move away from things that bother us and we're no longer scared about that. Yeah. Uh, so I, there are other therapeutic modalities like right. uh, bre breathing mm -hmm. uh, methods are also very useful in doing rapid physiological state shifts mm -hmm. that teach us about our internal bodily state. Mm -hmm. And in my workshops, I often do a little bit of breathing exercises, uh, not, for, not for making people feel better, but for demonstrating that the physiological state that you go into can distort your perception of another. Mm -hmm. So if you increase the ratio of inspiration to expiration, slow inhale and more rapid exhale, you turn off the vagus and you start mobilizing. Mm -hmm. And your I perspective- I remember you telling this story. Yeah. Were you doing that exercise at a presentation in the UK? Yes, yeah. yes, people became destabilized. And actually one person said, uh, so in the US, there's something, uh, actually the, one of the people from the UK told me, he said, the person changed from looking like a Bubba, which is a robust Southern uh, American uh, uh, old boy kind of thing, right. a, a kind of, to a Buddha. <laughs> <laughs> so just by breathing his perspective, the other person changed from, uh, it says pulling back, to a sense of warmth, loving, and caring. Mm -hmm. And what people would often say to me is that when they do the long inhalations and their bodies get more tense, the person then who's, who's observing them, because I have them pair off, one is an observer and one is a breather, they see the observer as being critical of them. They say, did I do something wrong? Because they see the face as more colder and more withdrawn. Mm -hmm. But when they exhale slowly, they say, oh, what a lovely person. I'd like to get to know that person. Yeah. Yeah. I need so, to do this exercise in one of my trainings. So I think I just, yeah. You, you'll be surprised mm -hmm. about how powerful it is. But it's what I also started to learn was that the observer's face starts to change almost like a mirror. Right, yeah. So if you become cold in your face, mm -hmm. you're sending a trigger to the other person's face. Mm -hmm. And I think learning. A great learning yeah. exercise for self-awareness and just understanding it, the mirroring. Mm -hmm. It is moving these automatic things into our sense of awareness of our own body. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, I know we're talking about the application of some of the work that Dana does and talks about in her book uh, with individuals, but I think the applications for families where parents learn <coughs> to understand their own regulatory or vagal system yeah. and what it triggers and then then they can help identify that in their children and mm. and particularly if they do have a, a child with 
trauma history or on the spectrum, they can learn to see what their states are and respond accordingly yeah. rather than yeah. looking at it as behavior. Yeah, I totally agree. And I, mm -hmm. I think what I started to learn when I started developing the technique mm -hmm. was that you couldn't treat the child alone. No, you, know, exactly. you, you, could, you could take these kids who carry diagnosis and you can make, enable them to be spontaneously socially engaging. But if the family wasn't welcoming and supportive of that, right. mm -hmm. the, the child went back to the avoidant withdrawing. Mm -hmm. And so I, I realized that uh, you really uh, you needed a strong psychoeducational component to any intervention. Yeah, totally great, totally great. Uh, so I just want to go back to you doing the research on the Safe and Sound Protocol because it wasn't like something you did in a couple of years. You spent quite some time really gathering your data about yeah. behind it. Yeah. So, yeah, well, th there's a lot in it that is theoretically driven. Mm -hmm. So I, I know you're, you're, you're curious about the duration of the sessions, how many sessions. Uh, the, the first thing you have to, uh, you need to understand is what, what's the quality or what are the characteristics of middle ear muscles? They're very small, mm -hmm. they're the smallest muscles in the body. But they're fast twitch muscles, meaning that they fatigue very rapidly. Mm -hmm. So you meant that the sessions couldn't be too long mm -hmm. and that the muscles had to go through a relaxation phase. And the frequency band that was used to start the whole procedure was a frequency band that was selected consistent with what's called the resonant frequency of the middle ear, meaning that regardless of the status, of your middle ear muscles, those sounds will get into the inner ear. Hmm. And what that meant is if you get the sounds into the middle ear, there's not going to be any fighting against it. It's just going to go in there. And then the frequency band would expand. And it was really hoped that that would send the feedback loop back down, just like going on a treadmill where you're increasing both the angle and the speed. It would say, we need a little more tension but very little changes. Mm -hmm. And so the band would expand and contract very slowly uh, and very little over the first day. And then over days, it would go further and further. And the actual uh, five day or five hour package was basically serendipitous. I will mm -hmm. admit that part. The yeah. shortness of the sessions were based on the uh, fast twitch notion that uh, you couldn't fatigue the system and you had to be very careful. And this was in re also, I had to engage or, or at least explain this to many types of therapists who believe that if something is good, more is better. And so we used to play with the metaphor is less is more. Mm -hmm. That you have to invite the system to respond to the stimulus. So everything was about less auditory information. And that's why the filters were there. And that why, is why the resonant frequency sounds were going through, that the nervous system had to welcome the sounds and process it. Mm -hmm. And so basically, the program of expanding and contracting frequencies uh, had a starting point and had an ending point. And the ending point was to include all the frequencies necessary mm -hmm. to uh, extract meaning from language. Mm -hmm. And that the speech and hearing scientists had already defined and they had initially it used to be called an articulation index mm 
-hmm. and then it was later refined and called the uh, uh, speech uh, sensitivity index or speech intelligibility index. And uh, basically think of it as AM radio Mm -hmm. or cell phone frequencies. Certain with the cell phone, you're not getting the full a band of acoustic frequencies you're getting the frequencies that will convey speech mm-hmm. and that's really the model that uh the ssp was built on was saying this isn't about developing your hearing uh for to become an opera singer or a musician it's about developing your ability to process vocalizations within the human speech range mm-hmm. And so, so when I took the starting point and the ending point and the gradations that I wanted to change it based upon the timing of physiological cycles within the body, it actually fit nicely into five one-hour sessions. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. And I had no idea in the beginning that uh, five one-hour sessions over, you know, one-hour sessions over five sequential days would be overwhelming for some people. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I actually saw it as people would get exhausted. I saw that as a very positive feature because the, the system was being challenged. But in all the cases I was working with, which were children at the time, they spontaneously recovered the next day. Right. It was only when I entered into the world of trauma and where I started to get feedback that the experiences were more complicated and more unpredictable. Mm-hmm. And so the SSP providers now had to be more trauma-informed and more observant and attentive to their clients mm-hmm. so that they had to basically trust the client and they had to ask the client, how are you doing? And to use uh, almost the terminology from somatic experiencing, the body had to resolve it. Mm-hmm. So these were challenges that were occurring and the body had to be respected in resolving, and the body would tell would tell people. So when we initially had the SSP being delivered and some therapists who had severe, severe trauma histories themselves decided they would try it themselves at home alone, mm-hmm. which became, in a sense, the worst thing because what I started to realize is safe and sound that there were two important components. Mm-hmm. One was the context in which you deliver it, and the only one was the acoustic stimuli. Mm-hmm. So if you're doing it by yourself, you're not safe. Mm-hmm. You need a supportive person, or let's say even even your your dog. Mm-hmm. You need a supportive other to be mm-hmm. in your proximity. Mm-hmm. Now I hadn't seen that with children because children were always coming into the lab or the clinic with a trusting parent, a parent mm-hmm. who was going to take care of them, and a therapist who was supportive but the child didn't have to leave the clinic or the lab, drive home or be on their own. Mm-hmm. When, when an adult goes into these situations, they're in the confines, mm-hmm. but suddenly once they leave or go out the door, they have to take care of themselves. Mm-hmm. So they have to have the capacity to detect predator and threat. And most people are much, let's say they're hypervigilant at a very low threshold. Mm-hmm. And so that's why the safety started to become so important and allowing, in a sense, inviting the client to tell you how they felt. Right. So context became extremely important mm-hmm. to understand that it's not, it's not a magic pill 
that affects everyone in the same way. Yeah. The body has to be welcoming. And, and if we go back to something that we discussed a few minutes ago, we're talking about Deb Dana and going up and down the ladder and experiencing mm -hmm. physiological states. Polyvagal theory is all about the intervening variable, which is the physiological state and how that intervenes between the, the, the context of the world, the stimuli, mm -hmm. and the behavioral, psychological, and physiological response we produce. So it's that intervening variable that if the physiological state changes, we process information differently and get different responses. And this includes how we process SSP. Wow. So we have to be really aware of the physiological state of the other. Wow. And as I was saying that when the clinicians got this, some of them couldn't wait to try it on themselves. Mm -hmm. And one, I got a 27 page single space mm -hmm. letter from a psychiatrist. Saying, yeah. uh, and this was really one of the amazing letter because she had gone through it three times. She bought it for herself. But first of all, she used to have to take medication before she saw her first client. Mm -hmm. And so she obviously had a whole, let's say, a lot of history. Mm -hmm. The first time was it was disruptive to her. She went through it, but she was going to do it again. Right, right. And by the time she did it the third time, she basically went through, literally in her metaphor, went through the tube and saw the world in a different way mm -hmm. and she wrote back to me and she in the end of the letter she says now i understand why people like music she could hear it and enjoy it mm -hmm. but the most uh it, telling part of her note was that she now saw humor in her daughter's antics oh, so good. she could see a, a different world and mm -hmm. and so it's really you start learning that even though people appear to be successful in the world, wow. even they hold jobs, they have higher uh, education degrees and they're respected, that many of them have really great difficulties in living their lives. And wow. this was told to me a lot. Yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think everything you've just been talking about just highlights more and what I really want to achieve with this podcast is that psycho-ed is really expanding the knowledge around how to support best outcomes for the protocol yeah. it certainly is not a tool that you can have a technician's kind of hat on and just hand it out that uh it you need to support and be attuned with yeah. clients to sort of say do we need to modify the implementation mm. right well i think this is a learning process for all of us right. because yeah. As I said, I started with autistic kids mm -hmm. and they were in a safe, protected environment. And then I started to see with adults, um, especially those with severe trauma histories, that what I thought were cues of safety were to them destabilizers. Mm -hmm. And that really, I had to now work on that intellectually and emotionally. And I realized that when you start thinking about what are the most severe traumas that people carry with them, it's violation of trust of someone who was close to them, someone mm -hmm. with whom they felt safe. Yeah, yeah. And that is the cue that's coming back to their body mm -hmm. when they hear the mother's lullaby or hear the modulation of the sounds. Mm -hmm. The body gives up defenses, but then sends the cues that giving up defenses is really taking on vulnerabilities. Mm -hmm. And the body goes back right, right. and basically says to them, get out of here. Mm -hmm. 
and and that's what the therapists need to be aware of. When I initially saw this, I was so concerned because my worldview is I don't want anyone injured. Mm-hmm. I want to be helpful. And I was saying, okay, we don't we don't deliver it to adults. Mm-hmm. But then the the world of, of the SSP providers start to inform me about how clever and intuitive and creative they were mm-hmm. in blending SSP with other therapies. Yeah. So using it for a few minutes with other therapies, starting changing people's state, using it in a psychoeducational mode where people start to uh, understand that their body shifted states. I started to see a really a, a, a different brilliance mm-hmm. of, of, of a community that I had never even, mm. even thought was, uh, I, didn't, I hadn't come up with all these ideas. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it really, it, it changed how I thought about SSP. Mm-hmm. When I first uh, negotiated with, with ILS, I wanted held to a very strict protocol. I didn't want creativity involved. Because mm-hmm. I was more concerned that people would take something that was good and basically you overuse it and fatigue the system. I was more concerned about overuse of SSP. Mm-hmm. But what I really have learned is that the, the provider community, and this is who we're talking to, mm-hmm. is extraordinarily observant and sensitive to the clients mm-hmm. and trying to work with them mm-hmm. with SSP as a tool. Mm-hmm. And the other point is virtually all SSP providers are trained in several other treatment modalities. Mm -hmm. So they can now start seeing how this can be useful with their other treatment models. Yeah, yeah. And my goal is to have complementary, to have episodes talking about complementary approaches. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So so we did, we have this, I created this uh, organization called the Traumatic Stress Research Consortium. And people who are listening can join it by sending an email to trauma at indiana.edu. But we start to, uh, the surveys are telling us uh, that uh, most trauma therapists are using, on average, eight different treatment modalities. Not using, are trained in eight treatment modalities. So it's not like you do one thing. People have an array. And what was also interesting is that many of the therapists saw their work as being polyvagal informed. And so I was very, very thrilled by that. But but what they meant by it was it's not a polyvagal treatment. They have a better understanding of the physiological state, the intervening variable Mm -hmm. uh, when they're working with their clients. So I Mm -hmm. started to see how things are working. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's it's really uh, personally very rewarding sure. to see I'm to sure. see ideas mm-hmm. uh, translated into practice. Mm-hmm.